along. You're going to be reading chapter 37, um, the entire chapter. It's a little bit lengthy, but we can stand together and, and uh, read God's word. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the others of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and it told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to, ground, to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They, shook Joseph, they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe to, of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of guard. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the faithfulness you demonstrate to us uh, through your word, through these wonderful um, examples of faith. And we pray now, Father, for Pastor Fisher as he comes. Thank you for uh, preparing him for this week. And as he comes, Lord, uh, speak to us through that which you have given to him this week. And may we uh, leave this place uh, filled with more of your grace to serve you in all that's before each of us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes pastors have bad dreams on Saturday night. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll have to ask Pastor Gary after the service. I know I've talked to Pastor Ted before that we both have had the recurring dream where you can't find your shoes, your dress shoes. It's just your tennis shoes or bare feet, and you end up in the pulpit in your suit with just bare feet or, you know, whatever it is. You're wearing shorts, you know, and you just can't find them. You have these horrible nightmares. and. My recurring nightmare, if you know my personality, is that I would get up in the pulpit without a sermon, without a manuscript, and I'm actually living that out a little bit tonight. Uh, as most of you know, I lost uh, some vision and had some significant vision issues very suddenly this week, and the first thing that went was reading and writing, which, if you're a pastor, that's, that's everything, really, um, that you do for sermon preparation, at least, so... Um, I have here in front of me, I normally do a manuscript, which is I literally write the whole sermon out. It's usually about six or seven pages. I have in front of me a page and a half and about 18 point font of outline. Uh, so pretty terrifying stuff for me, actually. I'm usually um, better equipped, but the Lord is good. And um, none of these issues are, Lord willing, none of them are, are permanent. This is all stuff that over the next two weeks may be completely resolved and may never come up again. It's all that kind of stuff. So nothing long-term to worry about, but for this evening, bear with me. I may just at times close my eyes and just talk that way. Um, 
The problem is that my left eye is just so exhausted from compensating that it actually hurts. And so even looking out, I can see you because my left eye works. I can't see almost anything out of my right eye, really. Um, but it's just exhausting. So just bear with me. And as Pastor Trescar reminded us this morning, have your Bible open. We're on page 37 and 36, where you'll find uh, the story of Joseph. Now, you remember, I hope, a little bit of the um, larger story here. Genesis is the origin story of your Bible. It goes back to the beginning. It tells us where we came from, why the world is the way it is. I would argue this evening that it's, it's fundamentally the most assaulted part of the Bible in our culture at this moment. Uh, Fifty years ago, uh, most people in our culture were pushing back against the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. They found that uh, sort of offensive and difficult. But most of our neighbors, friends, and family were okay with the idea that there was a God out there who made us male and female, and there were some basic structures to life. Uh, we're living in a time now where this uh, book of origins is really the target, and the goal in our culture is to destroy and efface entirely the idea that there is any order or purpose to life or to humanity in any sense. Rather, everything in your life is determined only by your psychology, including your gender, even your race. It's all imaginative. It's all what your brain chemistry or psychology tells you it is. Nothing is given to you. Nothing is mysterious anymore. Nothing is from God. And, and Genesis really cuts against that way of looking at life by going back all the way to the beginning and telling us our story, the story of humanity. And, and it's, a, it's a tragic story. I hope you feel this as you study the Bible. Our story is a story of a great people, a great race, capable of unbelievable things, destroyed by sin and ruined. And nowhere maybe is that more powerfully communicated, I think, for me, than in the murder of Abel by Cain. You know, here Adam and Eve, our first parents, fall into sin. And in one generation... Their children are murderers. If you doubt the power of sin, first of all, I feel bad for you because I, I hope you see it enough in your own life to know its power. But if you doubt the power of sin, there's all the proof you'll ever need in life. Adam and Eve had children immediately. They're murderers. That's how powerful sin was in its impact. But God in his mercy and grace refused to leave our race in ruins he stayed faithful to us, though we had been unfaithful to him. And he continues through the book of Genesis to call and elect and choose different men and women to be his representatives on earth. And when he calls them and chooses them, he gives to them his covenant, even though they don't deserve it, even though they broke the covenant in the Garden of Eden, he restores the covenant with them. But this time he gives it to him always on the basis of grace. And so he saves Noah and he chooses one of Noah's sons, Shem, and says, through this son, I'm going to work in the world. And then we saw how he chose Abraham and then from Abraham, Isaac, and then from Jacob, now Jacob's 12 sons to make a nation, a holy nation, a priesthood uh, to live for God right in the center of the world and to take the message of God's truth to the whole rest of the world. And although I don't have time to explore it now, he trained those men eventually to build a temple that was modeled on the Garden of Eden. 
and to place it in Jerusalem at the center of their nation, and then as priests, as Adam should have done, to take that message to the world, the message of salvation. But as we've been seeing in our studies, uh, this is no easy task. Thankfully, our God has ultimate power because we are still sinners. And we've seen Abraham struggle with sin. We've seen Isaac struggle with sin. And we've come now to what may be uh, the most difficult struggle of sin because God has now spread his, his love and his election out to include all 12 of Jacob's sons, right? These are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the past, there was always the choosing of one. You'd had Jacob and Esau. God put his love on Jacob, right? You had Isaac and Ishmael. God chose Isaac. But now God places his love on all 12 of these men. But you see the kind of men that they are, don't you, in this chapter. And you have to, as we start the story of Joseph, we need to see in human terms how hopeless this seems. I hope you feel that with me. How hopeless that God would bring light into the world through 12 men like this. How, how can anybody do that? Uh, look at how wicked these men are. We've already seen two of them murdered an entire town out of vengeance for their sister. The oldest one, Reuben, slept with his, mother's con his father's concubine in a sort of weird act of trying to grab authority. These are not just and good men. But God has a plan for all 12 of them. And by the end of Genesis, these 12 men are going to be very, very different men. But at the center of these 12 men is one man who stands out more than any other and will be our focus in the coming weeks. He is the first savior, little s, savior of God's people that we see in the Old Testament. His name is Joseph. And he's a very special and actually a very important character in your Bible. More words, more chapters are given to Joseph's life than pretty much any other life in Genesis because of the importance of his life. And he will save the other 11 brothers, not just their lives physically, but in a sense, the whole experience, their sin against him, their wrestling with him, their coming to grips with their own sin will really transform the whole family. He is very much the suffering servant of the book of Genesis. So I want to begin uh, this evening that study of his life by just noting two things and then I hope applying them uh, to us. The first is to see how in verses 1 through 11, his brothers fiercely hated him. In verses 1 through 11, he, his brothers fiercely hated him. They hated him first because Jacob, his father, favored him. Because Jacob favored him. Now, it's somewhat understandable if you know Jacob's history, you understand a little bit of why he might have favored Joseph. Remember, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, right? Rachel was the desire of his life, the desire of his heart. He was tricked into marrying her older sister, Leah, but his heart really was for Rachel. And Rachel, much like Sarah and Rebecca before her, was a beautiful, beautiful woman who was also barren, could not have children. And so the birth of Joseph was, was somewhat a, a miracle from the Lord. It was distinct from, different than the other births of his other sons. In other words, Jacob probably had a sense right from the beginning, there's something special about this boy. 
in the way the Lord gave him to me and suddenly allowed a Rachel to have this child. He knew the stories of his mother and his grandmother. They had both gone through this experience. They had both had their womb opened later in life to have a child of promise. And so Jacob probably loved Joseph for that reason and, and had a special uh, love for him. He also probably loved him in a special way because Joseph's birth, if you remember past sermons, Joseph's birth marked an important change in Jacob's life. Up until the moment of Joseph's birth, Jacob is really a servant of Laban and of his uh, daughters who are his wives. He's really under their th authority, under their power. And it's, it's a very dark time in his life. And, and you'll remember from past sermons that it's at the moment of Joseph's birth that all of Jacob's fortunes, all of his uh, livelihood is sort of turned and the Lord begins to shine upon him and smile upon him. And he sets his face to return home. And the Lord begins to really bless him. And so there was a lot going on in the birth of Jacob, uh, Jacob's son, Joseph. On top of that, we might add that he's, uh, he's a man of character. We've already seen that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have really poor character. They've been violent, really immoral. Uh, Joseph may or may not be, some people make the argument that in this passage, he's a little cocky, you know, going around telling everyone his visions of his greatness. I don't know if that's the case. The Bible actually doesn't say that. So we want to be careful. But his character really throughout his whole story is really excellent. It's probably better than almost anyone uh, in the book of Genesis. Um, and so it's really striking. So no doubt um, Jacob's heart went out to his son. You know, this was, this was the son of his older life. This was the son who got to know him when he was a more mature believer. I bet you, I would bet that Joseph got a better upbringing than his other sons did. So there were a lot of reasons uh, for this love. But nevertheless, Jacob failed, ultimately, I think, in favoring his son above the others. And, and because he favored him, for all, and we can understand the reasons, but because he fell into that trap, he twice, you'll notice in our text, he twice put Joseph over his much, much older brothers. So once in the beginning, we're told in the early verses that Joseph brought, remember, a bad report. And then later on, I think it's verse 13, we're told that um, he sent by Jacob to go check up on them. And so you can see how Jacob was favoring this son and sort of putting him above the other boys, even though he was young. And the mark of his favor, the, the symbol of his favor, and probably what he's become known for, sort of interestingly, is this multicolored coat, this coat of many colors. And I don't want to bust any uh, bubbles here as I did with Jacob's Ladder, but it's, it's really uncertain if what is here is actually multicolored coats. It's very possible that what is here is a long sleeve and long coat, that that's the image. And the picture here is that um, this was a coat made for a lordly person, a person of authority. This is a person in management. This is not an outfit you wore to do manual labor, see? The coats of his brothers would have been short because they were in the fields, they were dealing with animals. Uh, this was an expensive coat. It marked him out. This was Jacob's way of announcing this as his true heir 
as his favorite son. And so you can imagine these older brothers, significantly older brothers, who are weathered men. I mean, they've, they've killed with swords. They've been out in the wilderness watching animals at night. And here comes the 17-year-old who's daddy's favorite, who's from daddy's favorite family, which is Rachel's family, not the other three wives, right? So he's from the, if you've ever been in a step family, you know there's a first family that's sort of the really loved family, and then some of us are part of the second family, right? It's kind of like, okay, but not, well, that's, that was the dynamic. So here comes Joseph at 17 with this coat on that clearly announces his favorite status, and he's checking up on them. He's checking up on them. Jacob's preparing him, and the idea would have been, right, I'm preparing you, Joseph, to rule over them, to keep this rowdy uh, group and check. And so you can start to understand how these men, the other brothers who were hard men, violent men in many ways, difficult men, began to really, really hate their moral, young, privileged little brother. And you can see it in these verses as just sort of stirring up within them. But there's a second reason they came to hate him, and that is because of his dreams. God favored Joseph with two dreams. The first in verse 7 is of sheafs. This is when you cut wheat and you bundle it together. That bundle of wheat is a sheaf. And Joseph sees in a dream that his sheaf stands up and his brothers gather around his sheaf and they bow. And this was a really amazing dream that God gave him. It actually is very predictive because if you know this story, you know the way Joseph is going to save his brothers is by stockpiling what? Wheat. Now, they actually are husbandmen. They, they keep animals. They're not farmers. So God was here telling Joseph, he was predicting for him, you're going to rise through greatness and you're going to rise to greatness. It's going to have something to do with this wheat. But Joseph probably doesn't know yet what that means. So he shares this vision with his brothers and you can only imagine uh, now whether he should have done that or not um, you can read the commentators I got to read a few before my eyes went this week and they disagree some say he never should have told that to his brothers cocky but then on the other side you you have to ask yourself this question you know if God comes and gives you a vision tonight and and that's not going to happen we live in the New Testament age but if it did happen wouldn't you want to tell uh, your parents your your siblings so it's it's a bit of a difficult question. Was he wrong to do that? Uh, we, we, I'm not going to say tonight. I don't think we should. We leave that to the Lord. Then he has a second vision. And this time it's the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun represents Jacob, his father. The moon, his mother. Now, Rachel, his biological mother, is dead. But here it's probably Leah who's become the mother, the chief wife of the family. And then these stars, his brothers, and they all come down and again bow to him. And it's very interesting in the end of this section um, that the brothers hate him, verse 11. They were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Mind you a little bit of the Virgin Mary, right? She pondered all these things in her heart. And, and Jacob at one level, he says to Joseph, this is nuts. What are, what do you think? You think mom and dad are going to come and bow down in front of you? Remember, in their culture, that just did not happen. You, you honored mother and father. That was the cornerstone of their culture. 
And, and Jacob is just amazed that he's had this dream. But then the text here says, but he knew enough of God and the way God works. And he remembered how undoubtedly how Joseph was born, how it was sort of a miraculous birth. So wait a second, maybe there's something here. There's something different about this son that I have. So they hated their brother and you can see why. And yet you can also see that God was with him. Then in verses 12 through 37, we read of how they sell Joseph into slavery. And Moses tells us that Judah and Reuben, both in different ways, tried to kind of stop them from killing Joseph. So Reuben convinces them to throw him in a cistern. A cistern is shaped like a bottle, except it's underground. So there'd be a round top, sometimes covered with a stone, and then it would go straight down and then open up. And so there's no way out of it. A very scary place to be. And this was not a pleasant thing for Joseph. And, and they throw him in the cistern. And between Judah and Reuben, their different influences, uh, they managed to convince the brothers not to kill him, but rather to sell him into slavery. And there's even a very dark moment in here where while Joseph's in the cistern, the brothers sit down and have a meal together near the cistern. And if you're, you're questioning what these men were like and whether they were fit to bring the gospel, the good news of God's love to the world, uh, that probably tells you all you need to know that they were sitting with their brother, you know, probably crying out in the cistern, sitting down and just having a meal together. These were brutal men. These were men who wanted what they wanted. They wanted to get ahead in life. Remember, they were raised by Jacob and they were raised by their uncle Laban. And you remember what Laban was like. He was a merciless man. He wanted his own way. And they've taken that character and they're presented that way. In the end, uh, they decide not to kill him. Uh, they sell him to slavery to Ishmaelites. These are descendants of Abraham, but they're Gentiles. They're outside of the line. They decide um, not to soil their hands with his death. And so they sell him into slavery. And in the midst of this, of course, God is doing his great work. There are really, that's a summary of the passage. Two things, though, I want to encourage you with tonight with the time that is left to us and uh, just ask you to consider and think. First of all, I think there's a great encouragement here for us as Christians, and, and it's this. We do not know, none of us knows what tomorrow holds. None of us knows what will happen to us in a year or in a month or a week or to our children. That's actually, once you have children, that's the scarier reality is you're, not almost, you're almost not as worried about yourself anymore as you are about your kids, right? And then for some of you, it's grandkids, I'm sure. We really do not know what's going to happen tonight to us or even tomorrow. But you know what God has done for us? He's told us the end of our story. He's not told us the rest, but he's told us the end of our story. He's told us in the gospel how my story is going to end and how your story is going to end. That's what God did for Joseph with these dreams. You ever ask yourself, why did God send to a 17-year-old boy two of these visions, knowing that as a 17-year-old boy, he was going to go tell his brothers, and they were just going to hate him all the more? Why would God do that? Well, here's the answer. These visions were the comfort of Joseph's heart 
over the many decades to come where he was mistreated and suffered terribly. When he was sold into slavery, when he, as we'll see, falsely imprisoned for years, what do you think he held on to? What do you think his hope was when he was in the cistern? It can't end this way. It can't end this way because I know the end of my story. And so he could cling to that hope. And maybe he shouldn't have shared it with them. I don't know. But we know why God gave these things to him at this moment. He gave him this information at this moment so that he would be ready to go what through what he has to go through. And Joseph is going to suffer. He's going to suffer a lot. And these visions will hold him up through his sufferings. In these visions, God is giving him the end of the story now without giving him all the details of how he'll get there. And what I'm saying to you tonight is that's exactly what God's doing with you. Your story, if you're a Christian, will end in liberty and in light and in power and in glory in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I don't know what happens tomorrow or next year. I don't know which ones of you will be married or unmarried, which ones of us will face cancer or lost jobs or horrible, horrible, horrible things. But we need to remind ourselves every day, we know how our story ends. And it ends in glory. And how that can encourage us when we're dropped down into the cisterns of life, when everything's going wrong. And Joseph will will go through so much. You think, I know many of you know his story. You know he kind of gets up out of slavery slowly, gets to a good place, and then through a false accusation goes right back down into being a criminal and being imprisoned. And I don't know about you, but I, I feel so abandoned by God in that situation. You know, I went through all that with my brothers, and now you're, you're dropping me back in prison to do this again. He had to keep holding on to the ending because he didn't know the middle. He just knew the end. And so be encouraged by Joseph's story. God knows our story. He knows it so well that he can tell the end from the beginning. And so here at the very beginning of Joseph's story, he can tell Joseph how it's all going to end because he knows it and he's in control of it. And Joseph will feel many times that his life's out of control. But in reality, God is in control. And those same things same exact things apply to us. Second of all, even as you're encouraged, I hope, in your journey of faith, look up in this passage and see a picture of Christ. We're going to see in future sermons again and again that Joseph is a picture of the Lord Jesus. The father cares so much for his son that even thousands of years before Jesus came, he's weaving into the story elements about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, as we come to the first sort of major savior character in the Bible, we shouldn't be surprised that there are profound elements here that point us to the Lord Jesus. Here is someone who came to his own, his brothers, and was rejected by them. They took his garment off him. You remember how important it is in the New Testament. Jesus' garment was stripped from him, and they cast lots for his garment. And as the brothers here mock him as that outrageous dreamer, you can almost hear the words at the cross, if you are the Savior, come down from the cross. He called himself the Son of God. He called himself these things. Look at him now. Look at him on cross. Who said that? His Jewish brothers 
said that to him, to Christ. And what did Christ's enemies do? They, the Jews turned him over to the Gentiles to do the dirty work for them, right? The Jews did not want their hands dirtied with the blood of Jesus Christ. So his brothers turned him over the Gentiles to do the work for him. What do these brothers do? The exact same thing. They're concerned not to soil themselves directly with the murder of their brother. So they turn him over to Gentile hands to be destroyed. It's, there's so many things here that begin already to point us to Jesus. Joseph truly is a suffering servant who through much, much suffering comes to a place of glory and then saves his brothers that they are treacherous. And we can all relate to that as Christians too, can't we? I kind of incorporate that in my prayer earlier. Jesus is our elder brother. He's our elder brother. And yet we're treacherous, aren't we, siblings? We don't love him. We don't serve him all the time. We harbor other loves and desires. And yet he dies for us. And so Joseph, we'll see, ends up serving and saving his brothers though they were treacherous and evil towards him. And they end up in the end bowing down to him just as all knees one day will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look for these things, not just now, but in future sermons. We'll see Christ again and again and how God works in our lives through his providence to bring us on the path he has chosen for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beginning to the life of Joseph already. There are so many precious things uh, for us to consider. Please guide and direct our thoughts as we ponder these things, maybe even tonight, tomorrow, bring more and more things to our attention and bless these few thoughts on your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.